Hello, everybody. I'm Liz Testa, and this is Lavish Hope. I'm so excited for you to hear this upcoming conversation with my good friend and colleague, Reverend J.P. Sundararajan. J.P. grew up in the heart of big city Bangalore, India, with the dream of becoming a medical missionary. At the age of 17, he made a brave move across the ocean to become a student at Northwestern College amidst the cornfields of Northwest Iowa. He went on to become an ordained minister in the Reformed Church in America and is now its Director of Global Mission, serving a network of over 100 missionaries and partners involved in 120 projects in nearly 50 countries worldwide. JP is still very much connected with India through his family's audio Bible ministry and his work as Global Mission Director. He and his wife Katie and their two children have become experts at sharing India with others. In this conversation, we talk about so many rich ideas and inspiring stories about lavish hope, resilience, and overcoming. JP shares his journey of coming to the U.S. from India, embracing a mindset early on to help him stay the course as he followed God's call on his life, and how his leadership calling as a storyteller and connector is undergirded by an inspiring combo of grit and grace. I can't wait for you to listen in. Come along with me now for Lavish Hope with J.P. Sundararajan. Hey, J.P., it's so good to be with you today on Lavish Hope. Thanks for joining. Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here with you today. Yes, thank you. And so um, let's jump right in. Wondering as we're thinking about Lavish Hope stories of resilience and overcoming if you could share with our guests, um, what does resilience mean to you and how has it been shaped by your past experiences, your life? And um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, so I often look at myself and um, the perspective of what, 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 how, when people see me, what do they, what I want them to see? And I carry in me this body of stories. That's really who I am. And so resilience for me, I think can be defined in, in one short little word. It's a word that came up uh, a couple of years ago, uh, but it has stuck with me ever since. And the word is grit. Um, and for me, the, for me, the way, there are many ways you could define grit. For me, the way I see it is that it's this standing uh, at the precipice, looking down at this valley of unknown things. There's heat on you and your willingness to stand in that heat just a little longer <laughs> than the person standing next to you. And for me on the leadership journey, um, resilience has often been synonymous with grit. And, and for me, that is, that's how I see it. It is the willingness to push forward when everything around you begs and forces and coerces you to slow down, take a step back, it's that willingness to stand in that heat just a little longer. That to me is resilience. And it's been my story in many ways of how I ended up here in the United States, how I lead a global mission today, my journey as a missionary, my role as a father, a husband, a son, a brother, a friend. Um, this, this operative word of grit for me um, works well when it comes to defining resilience. So good. So I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit, like maybe a story or two. It sounds like you've got several you could share there, but um, I know for our listeners, uh, the 
you know, your background having come from India to the United States. I think that's that's a story that many resonates for many and um, would love to hear a little bit about that journey. And then, of course, you're you're talking about leadership and grit. That's so many lessons there, I'm sure, that our listeners would love to hear about. The other part I will also add, Liz, is for me, resilience and grit. The fuel for that has always been grace, um, both the ability to receive it and the um, the ability to extend it to others. Um, that has been what has really tempered and grown me in this particular aspect of my journey. So when it comes to stories of it, I, I immediately, as I was thinking about today in our conversation, it took me back to when I was... I want to say 16 years old, maybe 15 going on 16. Um, I was just finishing up um, my penultimate year of high school in Chennai, India. And my parents had the opportunity for the very first time to leave India and visit the USA. And they had this amazing two-month journey to traverse all these states, urban America, rural America, et cetera. And they came back and they introduced me to um, one of the colleges that they had uh, visited when on their trip, and that was Little Northwestern College in Northwest Iowa, a place I'd never even heard of. But right. they just said, hey, you know, um, there we had this very brief, like it's like a three-minute conversation with the president of the college. And he said, I hear you have a son who is getting ready to graduate. Would you consider sending him to the United States to Northwestern College so we can train him for ministry? And it's a story like the butterfly effect, right? Like the little fluttering of a butterfly wing on this side sets off a tornado on the other side of the world. And that's really what happened. It changed uh, the course of my life. I had been planning all along um, on becoming a medical missionary in India. Um, I had about eight or nine medical schools I was applying to. And my parents came and in in a very um, gentle, beautiful way, they just said, hey, uh, this is a conversation we had. Uh, Don't get your hopes up because realistically us being able to afford to send you to the U.S., it's, it's very minuscule, the possibility of that happening. We'll pray for it. Um, if it's God's will, it will happen. Um, but you keep studying hard and, and kind of like would launch for me a sequence of events that would eventually lead to other doors being shut. And the only door being open was this little school in Northwest Iowa. And I finally got, um, you know, all the finances lined up and I got what would essentially become like the golden ticket to Hollywood, right? Like a, a letter from Northwestern that said, hey, welcome to Northwestern College. Here is, it's called the I-20 form. Um, it's the form that you would take to the U.S. Embassy and tell them, hey, I've been accepted. Uh, all my finances are in order. I, it's all been set. I need a visa to go to the U.S. Now, this is a, this, you know, seems uh, very sequential. It seems very perfunctory, almost routine, uh, but it was anything but in the mid-1990s. Because India at that time was going through what they would call a uh, brain drain, where the smart minds of India were leaving and not coming back. And uh, I knew um, how tricky this visa situation was going to be. Because my parents, when they had visited the U.S., they had to go to the U.S. embassy in Chennai, the closest embassy to Bangalore, my hometown. And uh, when they applied, um, the, there was there was one particular uh, official of the U.S. Embassy, a lady who is known all over India, at least when I was growing up, as the lady who stamped no on your passport when you applied for a visa. It was like so much of a running joke that she would be featured in commercials where she would be stamping <laughs> on passports. And she was in movies. Like It was like she was known as that lady that was just not uh, hospitable to her Indians applying uh, to go to the U.S., And their rationale was, you know, a lot of them say they're going to come back, but they just move and never come back. 
And so there, they, she had a tough job of filtering out who the legitimate uh, applicants were. And uh, anyway, my parents unfortunately ran into her, and and they didn't have they didn't furnish enough proof that uh, they had wealth, land, or assets that would bring them back to India. The only things they could offer her was their two kids. You know, their two boys. They were saying, "Hey, we would never leave our children behind." But unfortunately for her, that was not sufficient proof. So she rejected their application and then they had to apply again, found somebody else and they got in. All that to say, um, I knew at this point, like, you know, as applying for the visa that I was dealing with this mentality and there's a a wall of sorts um, that I had to go through in order to even make it to the U.S. where God lined up all these things so beautifully. And so after I got my I-20 form, um, I, like I said, I grew up in the city of Bangalore, even though I went to high school in Chennai. Uh, my dad and I took a train and it's kind of like an, it's like a six to seven hour train ride from Bangalore that would take us to Chennai. We arrived at 8 p.m. And the way to get on the U.S. embassy, Liz, is you'd have to go very early in the morning and line up outside the embassy. Mm-hmm. And when the gates open, it's first come, first served. And my parents, that's what they did. They got there at like 4.45 or 5 a.m. in the morning for an 8 a.m. You know, opening of the gate. And so this is like 8 p.m. at night when my dad and I arrived in Chennai. And my dad could not recall when the embassy opened. And so he said to me, why don't we just walk by the embassy and look for the time so we know what time we need to come in the morning and stand in line. And so we did. And you're not going to believe this, but the U.S. embassy in Chennai is in a very, very busy road uh, in the middle of this huge sprawling metropolis. And there's a there's a road right in front of the U.S. Embassy that is at an angle. Um, the bottom of that slope is where the U.S. Embassy's main entrance is. And that street was packed with people at 8 p.m. at night waiting to get in the next morning. And it is chaos. There are thousands of people everywhere. There are, it is just a throbbing pulse of humanity. You had lines that People said, hey, these are the F1, the student visa lines. This is the tourist visa line. These are the H1B, the business visa lines. These are people seeking uh, to, you know, emigrate to the U.S. And they were all, it's just pure chaos. And my dad and I looked at each other and we said, I suppose we're not going to stay in the motel tonight. We have to find a line to get in. And so we did. Um, It was, I mean, it was, we weren't even sure there's the right line. I could not even see the gate from where I was standing. And and we waited at night, just, you know, we had traveled all day at this point. We were exhausted. And uh, like I mentioned, this, the street is at a bit of a slope. And there's a reason why I mentioned this. It's because that night it rained and it poured, like the tropics usually unleash. Uh, the, the weather gods were just smart. It was just pouring and the water begins to collect at the bottom of the street. And so pretty soon my dad and I were standing in knee deep water. <laughs> Around oh, no. 30 or midnight in knowing fully well that this was going to be our, because I had my documents with me. I had our luggage that we had traveled with. You can't get those things wet. And these documents are so precious. This would be what we would take with us, right? Uh, to the embassy to prove to people that, hey, I'm a legit, I'm a good student. I, I have a college that wants me to study there. And, and so I'm protecting my assets. I'm standing, freezing in, in, in water that is just up to my knees. And the city of Chennai, if you've ever been there, you'll realize it's very humid. It's a seaside city on the uh, southeastern part of uh, India. And so thankfully, around six or seven, the sun comes up and very soon everything dries 
and including you, and you're you know covered. You don't feel great. You've been staying. You've been standing up all night, and around eight a.m., a little gate opens, and the line begins to move forward. And uh, I remember, by the time eleven a.m. shows up, I can I can almost see the fe- the facial features of the guard standing in front of the gate. And I also saw the gate getting slammed shut because visiting hours of the day were done. And they were saying to us, come back tomorrow. And, you know, you were just exhausted, broken completely. And I said, you know, I was 16 at this point, um, just kind of coming up on my 17th birthday. And and I was like, why are we doing this? This is this is uh, it doesn't feel and I, I didn't have the words to articulate my feelings, but it just felt like too much hard work for something that may not even happen. Mm. Um, and I was worn down, exhausted, as was my father. And the people around us were, needless to say, quite upset. And so they had this verbal back and forth with the guard. And finally, the guard said, hey, listen, come back tomorrow. Those who are here in front, write your names down. We'll call you ahead. And so uh, the next day we showed up and of course, you know, the guard was not there. We couldn't find the <laughs> list, but anyway, it's like typical in Indian drama of sorts, but we were able to actually go in and they told us, Hey, um, unfortunately due to the incredible backlog of people applying for us visas, we're going to give you an appointment day and time. So on that day, just show up and you'll be guaranteed an audience with uh, the visa official. And it was exactly a month away from the day I applied. And so now it was important uh, because if I did, applied for the visa on that day and did not get in, um, I would not be able to go to the U.S. because my scholarship is a default and I would not make it in time for orientation and all that stuff. But then one month became that month of, for me, where I think resilience was born in my heart, Liz, where I had my classmates were graduating and moving on to whatever they felt God calling them to. And there was me. I could, I wanted to tell people so badly, hey, I'm going to the United States. And instead, I, I can't because until I have a visa, that's not going to happen. And my mom would say this to me over and over again. And she was just this beautiful, God-fearing woman. And she would say, listen, and she called me John. She said, John, if it is God's will for you to go to the United States, then that lady in the U.S. Embassy will give you that visa. If it's not, then you could have a letter signed by President Bill Clinton, who was then the president in the United States. And she said, uh, you could have a letter signed by him and you would still not be able to go. And I said, mom, thank you very much, but I'd rather not see that lady. <laughs> and, and I remember um, actually that was that conversation with my mom. The other conversation I had with my, with my father standing in knee deep water in front of the U.S. Embassy when I looked at him and I said, I think we should go back. I, don't, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I'm sure I can find another medical school in India I can be a part of. Um, I know God's calling me into mission and ministry. Um, I don't need to do this. This is, there's no guarantee that any of this leads to anything. And my father saying to me at that point, and he called me da, which is like an affectionate term. He's like, it's, like, it's okay, da, we're, we're, we're here. Let's see how this goes. And for me, my parents modeled for me both this, this beautiful expression of faith that was just this reliance on God that said, there's, there are opportunities for miracles to happen, but you have to stay in that a little longer. It's that idea, again, of standing in that heat just a little bit longer than you think you can physically, mentally, spiritually, psychologically deal with. 
And, um, and as you know, the story turns out, um, I would go back a month later and I would go in and they gave me a token, Liz, it said number 620. And they took me into this waiting room in the U S embassy with photos of all of these amazing landmarks in the United States. And, and they said, Hey, listen, when this number gets called, it'll be your turn. And, um, so I'm sitting there 620. I can relax. It's eight, it's 9am at this point. And I'm just taking in the picture of Salt Lake City, Utah, which I didn't know was a lake or why was it Salt Lake and why do they call it a city? <laughs> and and then I see 620 flashing right next to it. And I was like, oh, these are randomized numbers. So I get up and grab my papers that were just, you know, a month ago soaking. And I begin this tentative walk into this lobby and they have all these kiosks. And I look for the 620 flashing and underneath it, I see that lady, that lady. <laughs> and I knew her face. And it's like, I never seen her before, but I knew who she was. I just knew it. And as I'm beginning that walk, my heart begins to sink with every step. By the time I'm there, I'm just a puddle knowing fully well in my heart, this journey has come to an end. Wow. And so we had a conversation. It was, I mean, I'm going to sound way more articulate here than I did there because I was stumbling over my words you have to seem confident. You have to give them proof why you're, and I remember, it, and, and the lady said to me, hey, everybody who comes here tells me they're going to come back. Why should I believe you? And I said, well, I don't have like land or wealth to offer you. You know, I'm called to be a missionary. Um, my parents are missionaries. That's really all the proof I have. Um, and she said, well, tell me something about, uh, Northwestern College. And I was like, well, um, it's in a little town. In the and she just interrupted me and bellowed, every town in the Midwest is small. And I was like, oh man, like I'm like having the worst interview ever. And then she's meanwhile furiously scribbling on this little notepad. And then she says to me, Mr. Sundararajan, I'm going to very reluctantly give you your visa. And then she looks at me and she goes, but if you get the chance, and you want to settle down in the U.S., the Midwest is a good place to live. And I stood there aghast, just like you're looking at me right now. Like, I thought it was a joke, a very cruel joke, because none of this makes any sense. And she looked at me and she goes, no, I'm serious. Just pay your visa fees. You're done. And I remember walking out. And this is where, you know, like in my memories, the images turn to a tone of sepia. Like everything becomes like slow. And I walk out into this, into this fog and I can see that wall outside of which is that pulsating throb of humanity in Chennai waiting for their opportunity. And I just feel the energy pulsing through that. And I walk toward that little gate that I had saw, seen slammed shut just a month ago. And as I walk through that gate, everybody just pauses and everybody looks at me and they say to me, I look for my father. And I said, uh, I kind of just flashed the little thumbs up sign. And it was just chaos after that. They're like, he got the visa. I can't believe he got the visa. And, and that would kind of launch uh, the next season of my life. But um, every time I think about resilience, I think about grit, um, I go back to that street. I go back to standing with my father in native water, um, wanting so badly to just go back home to a comfortable couch. There you go. There's a little story for you today. <laughs> That's a great story. Well, you know, and we, we think about here at Lavish Hope, we talk about resilience and overcoming because we have to acknowledge, right, in order 
like in order to achieve whatever it is that God is calling us to do or whatever it is that we have on our hearts to pursue, there has to be that, you know, you have to, there's something that we have to go through. Literally for you, it was knee deep water, um, among other things, Um, but to be able to overcome it. And I just love that you had that experience, you know, as a young person where you were able to really stay the course and that you had, we talk about wise counsel, right? You had your parents there that were encouraging you, not making false promises or saying, you know, I think sometimes there's a lot of bravura where we lose our humility and we're like, you could do it. You can make this happen. You know, do something harder and with more commitment. Um, Sometimes you just have to sit back and trust the process. Yes. Yes. Even as you're clutching, you know, keeping your documents safe and, you know, staying the course and not, you know, bailing and bailing on this plan and going to a secondary plan, which you probably, I mean, you would have made a wonderful medical missionary staying in India as well. But I think this for sure was God's plan for you. Absolutely. I think the the idea of sitting with your discomfort is also one that I keep thinking about oftentimes where I am reminded over and over again, our bodies just want that. The, the, the security, the, the soft cushion of your couch, the, the pillow that wants you to stay in a little longer and your ability to tough it. It's not even toughing it out. It's just sitting, sitting there just a little longer. What that might do. Yeah. So what would you say, like, where do you find resilience when you don't have it? Coming from an ancient culture. And Liz, I know in our prior conversations, we've talked often about how we represent institutions and cultures that are ancient in some ways. Um, to understand that a lot of what is to come um, is unknown, yes. But the God who brought us this far has been faithful. And I think uh, the body of work that goes before us, uh, behind us, I mean, um, is what uh, fuels what goes before us. So I think for me, I find comfort and resilience or even uh, the fuel, like I mentioned grace before, a reminder for me that I'm not here by accident. Every time I feel uncertain about what's next, I, I look back and I love this about our reform theology in some ways as well, where it's it's best understood in hindsight um, of the grace that has sustained us so far. So for me, that's what I do. When And then I'll, I'll be honest with you, uh, this is not always easy. And I fail at this more than I want to admit. But every time I find myself wondering, where am I going to find that next sustaining fuel for my journey ahead. I, I look back, I look, I, I look at the image of my father standing because he was there with me in that water. Um, and he simply said, it's okay. It's okay to let's see what happens. And what a beautiful thing to remember when I stand my today in whatever surrounds me to remember those words, it's okay to Well, and I think what a beautiful message for today. I mean, so much of what you were sharing in your narrative from the, you know, the 1990s was resonating for me. And I'm sure for many of our listeners in terms of what's happening today for people who are trying to come, you know, to this country, but also who are trying to move through systems, right, established systems that perhaps don't work as smoothly as we would like them to or what have you, but trying to, you know, you feel sometimes like you get bogged down by systemic um, dysfunction is more of a clinical term, but just by the messiness, right? Um, some people call it red tape, bureaucracy, et cetera. But that, um, but that there is 
you know, there is a blessing in staying that course and being able to see your way through it and connecting it back to, um, you're talking about, you know, the grace and then like, what, what's, what's the fuel that sustains us. And I just love that you're, you know, reflecting on that a little bit. And you said that word possibility. And I often like to match hope and possibility together. I like to use them together because I think, you know, we have the hope of our faith and then there's this possibility that we as, you know, created in God's image, right? We're creative too. We also have agency to um, just sort of seek what it is that we are to do. What are our gifts to develop, right? The purpose that we know that God has for us, but that we have some agency in that. And so I love that you mentioned possibility. And I'm, I'm wondering um, how like sort of fast forwarding, right? Like you told this great story of kind of like, how did you get your ticket to get into this country? And then sort of like, since then, I mean, you're an amazing leader, um, locally, and then also now as our director of global mission in the Reformed Church in America, and then you still have very solid connections with your family and ministry in India as well. And sort of like, sort of how did that all kind of? I mean, I'm asking you to say a lot, probably, and not very much time. But like, how? Like, what would you say? Like, what's a story of like either how you got there, or like where you are today, that just sort of celebrates this journey? Yeah, so God has a beautiful sense of irony in all of this as well. And I often have wondered, you know, like life is, it, there are frayed ends. And I think appreciating the frayed end is a a skill that comes, I think, with just simply having lived on earth long, uh, a maturity that just comes with experiences of being, um, understanding that where the ebbs and flows of life and grace and challenges all, all, all mingle in together. Um, and for me, I find like all my life since I was I, on my desk at work, Liz, I have a handwritten essay that I wrote when I was in fourth grade about how I wanted to be a medical missionary. And the, the teacher who read it um, was a lady who was not even Christian and she read it and, but she understood what call was. And so she said, I want you to take it home and I want your parents to read it and sign it. So now they've seen this. And that would launch my entire uh, quest to becoming a medical missionary that would take me to the doors of the U.S. Embassy and to Northwestern College. And, and along the way, God would nudge me in, in small but meaningful ways away from the medical realm and, and to focus more on what this could look like uh, to be a, a mission co-worker in India through the Reformed Church, et cetera. And, and that, it's been a beautiful journey um, of being able to work with my family, being a connector of uh, life in India with life in you know rural Northwest Iowa even or West Michigan now, and 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 I always love that role of being that connector piece um, of being of, of both India and the U.S. Or right now for the missionaries to their churches, or uh, you know, and in, I, I take on this role very seriously, and I and I love being in this role, but I often wondered. Um, what happens to the medical bit? Like I spend so much of my energy into working, at, you know, in becoming a doctor, um, but I'm not a doctor now. What happens? And and often, you know, I've mentored many uh, friends in India who have since then gone on to become doctors in amazing, wonderful ways. They're doing great things in their communities. And one of them had a conversation with me a few years ago, I would say maybe a decade ago. And I kind of shared with him this, and he said, maybe it's the David Solomon story. Maybe you don't be a doc. You don't become a doctor. Maybe one of your children, they become doctors. And I was like, that's an intri intriguing possibility. And I was okay with that. And 
just in the last couple of years, Liz, in my role here with the RCA and what we've been able to do, um, it's fascinating because uh, last in, in 2019, in April, we were uh, in the Middle East dedicating a new women's and children's hospital um, for you know, a global mission and for the Reformed Church in America in partnership with our, our friends there. Um, in November of that year, I would be on a, on a boat on the Amazon River working with our partners in Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, where we would you know, bring in people who need medical care. There were like little activities for the kids we were doing. I got to tell my story. And, and here's the beautiful, ironic third piece of that is um, I am now on the board of the Christian Medical College Foundation. Um, ironically, in 1995 or 96, um, I applied to get into the school and I didn't get in. And wow. here I am. It's almost and that is a school in India, in southern India. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, uh, it is a school started by one of our own RCA missionaries, uh, Ida Scudder, who is a legend uh, in many ways in the country of India and even in, in the RCA and the mission circles, uh, where she, as a young woman, would go on go to India in the early 1900s and establish a school to train um, physicians and nurses, particularly women, to take care of. I mean, she would transform women's healthcare forever in India, and the CMC mm-hmm. school has since grown mm-hmm. to become, in its own in, in its own rights, one of the finest medical institutions, uh, colleges, etc., uh, in all of India, which is why it was one of my prized places to go to. And God would say to me, in hindsight, much later, I know you wanted to go as a student, but I have something else for you in mind. And that would unfold like two years ago, right? And I continue, like, in fact, um, this Wednesday, I'll be attending their annual board meeting again. And, and I keep thinking, you know, um, my idea of what medical missions was was so limited. Um, it was beautiful for a fourth grader, and even I would say for a lot of people that it, it, the, the vision I have sitting on my for, on my desk in my office was beautiful, tender, and and I often tell this to people: um, God's ways are going to be different than your ways. Um, but just because that's the case, it doesn't mean that your heart's deepest desires will not be taken into account. Because the words and heart's desires of a fourth grader still matters to our God. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, I'm just so grateful. I think about um, where I find myself today and the doors that we get to uh, hold open for many uh, to both understand how uh, the gospel is proclaimed and demonstrated around the world. Um, to show showcase to people uh, how grace uh, can be received and extended, and ultimately how we grow resilience in our own journeys. Um, it has been just beautiful to watch because it's also my story. It is not one I have read about or heard about. It's one I continue to live into. And, and I stand right now in my own precipice of sorts. We're looking ahead to a world that's emerging from COVID, um, for a country that is still wrestling with uh, issues that are plaguing it and have, I would say, for many, many years, (laughs) we've just ignored it. But I think uh, a lot of factors have brought it to the light. The church that is finding itself fracturing increasingly uh, for Christians who are having a hard time wrestling with how do we maintain our Christian identity in a world that is becoming post-Christian or Mm -hmm. uh, post-church or whatever that looks like. And I say to myself, what a beautiful place to be. What an amazing time to be. Can you now stand in that water a little longer and can you look at each other and say, it's okay to, let's see how this goes. And what will God unfold for us 20 years from now that we will say, man, my idea was so small. Look, look at what God has wrought. 
That is a good word because I mean, I just love that image of you taking that in that fourth grade essay to be a medical missionary and just what you painted for me of these, you know, all of this. I mean, for surely God knows the plans, right? <laughs> for a future with hope. And here you are on the board of the very school that you had applied to. I mean, that is unbelievable. And, you know, in um, in my my day job with the Reformed Church in America, uh, the ministry that I shepherd called Women's Transformation and Leadership, we are good friends with uh, with with CMC and um, and just love the work that they're doing. And of course, we revere Dr. Ida Scudder. And so I um, am personally so excited just to hear about your connection and just to see all of that. And, and, and you know, also just thinking, uh, JP, right now, you know, India has been in the news around with COVID and, and the pandemic and everything. And my understanding from having um, been in a recent webinar uh, with them was that that, that, uh, that, they have been able to open up more beds. They've been kind of on the cutting edge of supporting those with COVID in their region. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, when the first surge happened, uh, what India went through in the second surge was what all of us were fearful would happen in the first surge. Mm -hmm. um, but CMC, even back then, um, was on the forefront of uh, bringing about change and um, helping the Indian community navigate the first surge. So much so that the Harvard Business Review would write a published article um, on CMC's handling of the pandemic, which was which would get all these rave reviews. But what I love about um, what both what CMC is doing, but also what you know we are talking about in resilience is it's not just a we did that and look at what we were able to do. But the question then becomes, can you do it again this time when things are really bad? Because when the second mm -hmm. surge hit, it was unbelievable the devastation that COVID wrecked in India. And CMC was again asked, in fact, two of their, like the Supreme Court of India appointed like, I think a nine person team of experts to help the country of India navigate the pandemic. And two of them were, are members of the, of the CMC's family in India. Uh, this is not something to be taken lightly. This is the best minds working for us right now. And, and, and they're saying, we're going to have to do it again. And we can't rest on the accolades of the past or bask in those reflected glories, but we're called to do something amazing again. And uh, and CMC has continued to lead the way um, in beautiful, wonderful ways of mobilizing resources, helping the people of India. And I will say um, India is doing better uh, now than it was just a few weeks ago, um, but we still have a long ways to go. And I'm thankful mm -hmm. for uh, people like CMC and other physicians and healthcare workers around India who are doing an amazing job of bringing this pandemic under control. Yeah, God bless them all. So um, when you're thinking about scripture, I'm wondering what uh, what verses do you go back to again and again, just around hope, resilience, overcoming your grit and grace? I love that. I have always said, if I, I don't have a tattoo, but if I did, it would be <laughs> age 15. Um, it's uh, the story of Jacob and it's the, it's the passage. It's a very familiar passage of Jacob, you know, having the dream at Bethel, the ladder set up on earth, the top of the region to heaven and the angels of God are sending and descending on it. And, and, and the story is beautiful, but what we often forget is Jacob was fleeing. He fled because he lied to his you know father. He he was a deceiver. He, he did all the worst things. And, and in despondency and despair, he falls asleep because he has nowhere else to go, fearing for his life. And that night he has this vision from God 
And God says to him in Genesis 28, 15. And again, this is like, I know this because it's in my heart and I can quote it. And it, God says, know that I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Know that I'm with you. And for me, that verse is one that I just love um, because I, I, um, I'm, I'm a stranger in a foreign land a lot of times. I say on good days, I'm bicultural. On bad days, I'm acultural. I, you know, but I know uh, that no matter where I find myself, um, that God is going to be with me and will not let me go unless God is done doing what God has promised, you know, God would do for me. And so Genesis 28, 15 is one that I would wholeheartedly say is my uh, verse that I cling on to, uh, both when I need a reminder of God's faithfulness, um, but it's also a message I like to offer people to say this, this is the story of an ordinary man in Jacob, a broken, flawed individual that God would found a nation upon. And that is all our stories, right? They're all just ordinary people that God somehow calls to extraordinary times and circumstances. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be God's grace again. Uh, that builds in us both character and also a portal through which others can experience um, the goodness that God has in store for us. So good. So good. So you're mentioning being bicultural and, you know, I am as well. So that's always a great, you know, we've had wonderful, lively conversations about that, but just wondering, and, you know, our listeners, many of them have it um, as well. And just wondering, so then, given that story, just sort of your story, God's story, Jacob's story, all of it. What could you offer to our listeners of like some, maybe some tips or experiences that you might've had? Like, how do you navigate that? Because as you said, you're, you, you know, you've remained, you've kept your home base in the Midwest. um, And so, and you keep your ties with India. And so you truly are bicultural. How do you navigate that? What, like, how are you cultivating hope within that? And just, yeah, what, what could you tell us? to help inspire folks. Yeah, I mean, I've had this uh, has always been a, a, both a struggle and a gift in my heart uh, of having a foot in two continents. And always, my, I remember the last words my mom would say to me when I got on that plane to from Bangalore to JFK. And she said, remember your roots. And and it was, it was words that, you know, I never forgot clearly. I still remember that. Um, and then... For me, it, it's um, a month ago, I had the privilege of walking. I'm part of a doctor of ministry cohort um, at Western Theological Seminary. And we were supposed to walk the Camino this summer uh, mm-hmm. in Portugal and Spain. But due to COVID, that got postponed and canceled. And we ended up recreating that experience in California. But as I was walking, there was one metaphor that um, I've been sharing a lot with my staff and with our missionaries and with churches or whoever else will listen to me. And it's this image of a rock in the midst of running waters. Um, And I feel that to be a helpful reminder um, for me of how I want to lead at this time, Um, how um, as things swirl around us, um, being a, a steady presence in the middle of these streams, um, knowing fully well that the water will shape you, the water will erode parts of you, um, leaving you shiny and smooth in the process. But letting that letting that flow through you without being overly reactive to every whim, every thought, every concept, but to be steady and and to be a place where people can find comfort. Um, I keep remembering that a lot. And I also want to pair that along with the other idea of 
I remember at some point when I was going through some really hard times, my wife telling me, you know, she said, hey, you need to get out of that because it is uh, you're you're losing the essence of what makes you you in this. And that is not a loss I can live with. And that was important for me to hear because oftentimes we get so consumed by what's around us that uh, we compromise by giving up parts of us that in the end we become complete, you know, in so many ways, the essence of who God created us to be is gone and you become uh, somebody who panders to whatever's around you. And so um, I just think that that imagery of that rock um, is just a helpful, uh, for me at least, a helpful uh, metaphor that I'm going to hang on to in this coming season uh, of just being steady in the midst of changes. That's so good. Thank you. Really appreciate that. So projects, things you're working on, like share with us what what do we need to know? What's cooking? <laughs> well, I, I think I often say, you know, like it's uh, it's it's like this, Liz, you and I, we have such a great time in our conversations uh, because we have stories of joy we like to share with each other. And I, I, I have often said this, the story that began with uh, Ida Scudder and uh, Samuel Zweber, and it's these exciting stories of what God did a hundred so years ago that continues to redefine and, and exciting stories are unfolding. And so my job, it's like the chief storyteller for Global Mission. That's really my title, where I get to see what God is doing and bring it to a thirsty uh, congregation nomination that needs to hear those things. So right now, what we're trying to do is kind of find ways in which oftentimes it's um, it's very easy to to kind of cater everything toward where the money is coming from or where the big, uh, you know, the big players, so to speak, are. And what I am actually very curious about is also exploring how could we find creative on-ramps for churches that are new church plants or churches that are right now meeting remotely or churches that are, uh, you know, like in many ways, not well-resourced, but want to be a part of God's good work around the world. How do we engage them in, in beautiful, creative ways and give them a place of honor? And so we're exploring ways in which we can invite them on our into our conversations, onto projects we're doing. Um, I want to find, um, you know, like if, if I often say this to churches, like if, um, if you don't know what you want to be doing, or, or the family, if your family is interested in this, but you don't know how to go about it, or an individual, talk to us. We have so many opportunities and places for you to get engaged. But, but if you already know where God is leading you as a family, as an individual, as a church community, maybe we could join you. So let's kind of figure out a way in which either you join us or we join you. And so we have plenty of great opportunities right now uh, through Global Mission. Uh, we want to engage. I'm, I'm looking at the, the next generation of our leaders um, who are going to be our next missionaries going around the world, who are going to be our next Ida Scudders. Like they're, they are sitting there in our, uh, you know, in our churches and in our college campuses. And so I want to keep telling these stories. I want to be jumping on this trampoline and having so much fun that people want to jump with us. And in the joy, I think the world will see that we're Christians by our love. Yeah. That's I know I haven't given you a lot of substance. We have, we have ideas, but that stem from this idea. Like, I don't want to just bask in the glories of the reflected past. I want to be creating those new stories and telling people to join us in this good thing. And the world right now, Liz, needs it more than ever for a church to show up in big, beautiful ways, uniting people, bringing healing where healing is needed, but ultimately just being an, an example of God's love. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an, it's a, it, it can be intimidating, but it's also a 
beautiful opportunity for us to engage in something meaningful and deep. So come join us. That's a beautiful, beautiful vision, JP. And you are just spot on that right now, I mean, you know, I'm out here in the New York City area and we really, you know, we were in lockdown just for months and months and months and um, had just very extremely high cases in many of our counties and, um, and in New York City proper. And as we're coming out of this experience, we're looking for meaning. We're looking for, for ways to, to find purpose again. And I think also for our younger people, I mean, I've got a, a, a senior who graduated high school in the midst of pandemic last year. And so many kids are needing to take that gap year they're trying to figure out how do we re-engage with the whole world and how do we really have substantive purpose? And so what I'm hearing from you is this kind of ministry of mutuality where you're not top down trying to offer products or what have you, but you're coming alongside to see how can we co-create opportunities um, to be able to go out and, 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 and live lives of purpose and connect with other people and hopefully do some good in the world uh, at the same time. Uh, and so that's that's really exciting. And I think I think for the next generations, that's something that they need. That's part of the healing. That's mm -hmm. part of the healing. Um, and and the, that opportunity for for better unity, I think, too. So how do we get in touch with you through the website? Is that the best way or do you have something else? The website was a, is a great place to start. Uh, you'll get to, you know, see our missionaries out there. You get to see our staff on the global mission team. Um, my email should be there. Otherwise you can hit contact JP and you'll, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll find a way to connect with me. We have an amazing staff. Um, so if not me, um, my people are, are wonderful at, uh, finding, uh, you know, resources and answers to questions you might have, but yeah, please get in touch with us. If you want to hear more stories, uh, you want to be a part of the story, yeah. Um, but I'm just I'm just thankful to be here at this moment. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Lavish Hope today. And um, God bless you and all you're doing. And thank you for sharing your inspiring journey with us. What a what a treat to have you with us today on Lavish Hope. Liz, thank you so much for the honor and privilege uh, you've granted me to be here today. I have really loved what you're doing with Lavish Hope, and uh, I I hope that today has been an encouragement to many listeners as well. We know it has been. Thank you. Thanks again for listening in. I hope more than anything that this episode has brought you one step closer to exploring what lavish hope, resilience, and overcoming mean to you in your own life. You can connect to JP and his team via www.rca.mission. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, leave me a comment, and reshare any place you're on social. You can also connect with me directly at ltesta at rca.org. This episode of Lavish Hope is brought to you by faithword.org, an online learning community where you'll find ideas for living out your faith, reflections on scripture, church, and faith, stories about how other Christians are following God's call, and resources to bring your own church or organization along for the ride. The Lavish Hope podcast is produced by Anna Radcliffe with assistant production by Lorraine Parker, sound design by Garrett Steyer, and web support by Grace Reuter and Barb Ellis.